Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I have a selfish reason for wanting to do this episode on tattoos. Mm-hmm. Because I wanted to talk about it, you know, a... A lot of our listeners have asked us to talk about tattoos, which we had years ago, yeah. but like it had been so long. Yeah. The tattoo landscape. We're has so totally different. Changed. Yes. Uh, and also it is taking all of my willpower to not pronounce it tattoo. Tattoos. I know. Tattoo. That's tattoo, the way to say it. not tattoo. Tattoo just is so much more fun to say. Um, but back to my selfishness. Oh, oh, okay. So I have two tattoos. Yes. Two tattoos. See, it just sounds so two much better. Two tattoos, I know. Anyway, I'm off the tattoo train. <laughs> so I have two tattoos, one on my wrist and uh, one on my rib cage. And I really want a new tattoo. Mm-hmm. I've been wanting a new tattoo for a while. And... It is time. Do you want big, small, colorful, black and white? I just want black and white, or I guess just, just black. black and yeah. my skin's pretty pasty, so that's <laughs> almost white. Um, both of my tattoos are only only black, and I kind of like sticking with that motif. Um, and I have an anchor on my wrist and a battleship on you know on my ribs. So and and she means the game. Battleship. She she totally totally doesn't mean an actual battleship. Yeah, it's actually a scene from the movie Battleship, (laughs) or it's a scene from the '80s commercial with the two little boys playing Battleship. (laughs) It's a huge back piece, actually. It's very intricate. Um, And I've got this accidental nautical theme going on, and I don't necessarily need to stick with that. Although I'm. I'm fine with it. You should get get Sylvia Earle in her like scuba suit. Oh, uh, she's like under the battleship maybe she's exploring. Under the battleship, yeah. Oh, well, I gotta tell you, I really have been um, thinking about getting a bird of some sort. Put a bird on it. I want to put a bird on it. I want to put a bird on my body. Is that <laughs> is that going to symbolize anything? Or? I want a bird, and I'm I'm saying all of this in such great detail because listeners, I am looking for suggestions. This is a thirsty explanation. You know you're going to get some. I hope so. But I'd like it to be a bird that's somehow symbolic of endurance, Mm. going, you know, survival. Like a vulture. Yes. (laughs) I want a vulture devouring carrion flesh. I literally saw a vulture in our urban setting the other day on the sidewalk. Because it was tattooed on someone? It was going to work, I think. It had its lunch in its mouth. Um, holding a blackberry. I don't know. Well, are you thinking more? Cause th- like you've got powerful birds like the golden eagle. Oh God, no, not an eagle. Things like that. No, <laughs> I, no, not with a, a flag behind it. Yeah. You, you know what? You're right. <laughs> That'll be my belly piece. I've got my, <laughs> my back piece and my belly piece. So that then I can learn how to like make my stomach do the wave so that the American flag can wave and the eagle can fly. Yeah. Golden eagles are way bigger than an American bald eagle, though. No, I want a cool bird. I really want a cool bird. <laughs> and any ornithologist. I think you're offending gold, 
Golden Eagle lovers out there, though. I think that you are <laughs> defending Golden Eagles. <laughs> I know. Why am I so defensive? I, I have no bird in this fight. Ooh, I like, mm. I like that. You're welcome. We are killing two birds with one stone, oh. which I don't know that that actually fits. I, but uh, but yeah, <laughs> ornithologist, bird enthusiast, tattoo artist, and collectors, if you have any good bird ideas, please send them to momstuff at howstuffworks.com or tweet us at momstuffpodcast because I, re- I want to find the perfect bird. I, I think I want a bird. I would recommend an owl, personally, but mm. I don't know. I don't know how, how how much endurance they have at, like, sports and stuff. On, only if it's the owl from the old school <laughs> Tootsie Pop commercials. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Symbolizing perseverance. Yes. Because how many licks does it take? Oh, well, only, only three. And yeah. so it's kind of the opposite. It symbolizes my <laughs> impatience. impatience. Yeah. So Jinx. with that out of the way, yep. let's talk about tattoos that actually exist and have existed for quite some time. Yes. Uh, let's not keep talking about white girls like me wanting tattoos. Well, let me preface our history uh, where we will be talking about uh, indigenous women and populations in North America by saying something about white people. And that is missionaries really mucked some stuff up. Oh, I know. I know. This is very reminiscent of our surfing episode because a similar thing happened when white missionaries entered what is now Hawaii and were like, um, all this naked surfing that you're doing is not okay. Yeah, basically taking something, uh, in that case, surfing, and in this case, tattooing, uh, taking something that's beautiful and meaningful and sacred and holds a lot of significance, spiritual significance, life-marking significance, uh, and just across the board dismissing it as uh, a heathen activity, something that's damaging to the body that God gave you. Yeah, and the thing is... I feel like the, the, the stereotype of women in tattoos in the United States is of, you know, the regrettable dolphin tramp stamp. <laughs> <laughs> when in fact, Native Americans and indigenous people, you know, in islands all around uh, the Pacific have this rich symbolic tattoo history. Like of dolphins? Uh, not of, well, not. Not necessarily of dolphins. Um, Sorry, I'm the worst. But <laughs> if we are speaking just about the U.S., mm-hmm. obviously Native Americans were the original tattooists. And we know this from written records ranging from 16th century European explorers to 18th century missionaries and traders, all of whom mention the body decorations of indigenous people they would encounter. And the body decoration might not necessarily be tattooing, but um, it often included tattooing. And in this episode, we're not just talking about the tattoos women get and people's views of those tattoos, because trust me, people have opinions on women's tattoos. But we're also going to be talking to you about the women who are the artists. And uh, we were looking at some information about indigenous women in Micro-Polynesia and Fiji, for instance, who served as their community's tattooists and their own designs that they had were considered beautiful. 
It wasn't a, an issue of like what we have today still, which is issues of like morality and and, uh, you know, being sexually deviant somehow if you're a woman with a tattoo to other cultures. It's historically been viewed as beautiful. Yeah, beautiful, a symbol of status. They were often used to uh, demarcate milestones, whether that is hitting puberty or getting married, having a child. Um, and we were reading about this in Drawing with Great Needles, Ancient Tattoo Traditions of North America. And they mention how references of indigenous tattoos in the U.S. go back farther than the existence of the word tattoo in English. So these anthropologists have had to go through all these records and kind of figure out what is and is not actually a tattoo because words like pounce, prick, stamp, embroider, which is my favorite, um, were used by, you know, people like explorers to try to describe these traditions and the body decorations that they saw. Mm-hmm. And women weren't tattooed as routinely as men were, but some definitely had some amazing and significant, socially significant tattoos. For instance, if you look at the Midwestern Osage tribe, which is also pronounced Wazazi, uh, their women were selected to receive enormous tattoos that allowed them to, quote, trap the life force and manifest it on Earth in the form of a long life and a lot of grandbabies. Yeah, so apparently these Osagi tattoos would kind of wrap all around these select women's bodies. Kind of <laughs> like I, I just imagine um I don't know, everything like coming into like your like all these lines meeting at your belly button and you have like a ray of light that would then shoot out of it and that's your life force. <laughs> and then you make and then you make babies and live for till you're like ninety five. Yeah, or you live forever through your grandbabies. Oh, yeah, I guess that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you live forever thanks to your belly button light. Yeah, oh, for sure. And people can always find you. Like a troll doll. Which is nice. Um, and for another example, the tattoos of Degiha, women who lived around the Ohio River, the Mississippi River Valley, and the Great Plains, were intended to snare souls from the spirit world and bring them into our world. Huh. I mean, my bird tattoo is not going to be able to do anything close to that. <laughs> I mean, it depends on if you get a golden eagle or not. Um, really stuck on that eagle. I, I, I it's can't. eagle or bust. Yeah. Maybe I'll just tattoo that on me. Eagle, eagle or, or bust. bust. I mean, that's a that's a great tramp stamp if I've ever heard one. <laughs> People won't get it, and I won't either, but I will pretend I do. Um, in 1851, we get a pretty famous figure in tattoo history, and that's Olive Oatman. So her family uh, on the frontier is killed, and she ends up being adopted and raised by Mojave Native Americans who give her this traditional tribal tattoo as a symbol of acceptance into the tribe, and it's these lines on her chin. And if you watch... The show, Hell on Wheels, there is a character based on Olive Oatman. She's got the tattoos on her chin. She's also a prostitute. I don't think Olive Oatman was a prostitute. But uh, Hell on Wheels, not a great show. I can't stop watching it. Um, But anyway, apparently Oatman was the first white American woman to have a tattoo. And people... uh, just have always been obsessed with her for good reason. I mean, it's not every day that you see, especially from 1851, a white woman with a face tattoo. Right. I mean, the image of 
This woman in Victorian clothing and dress and her hair all done up just so. And then with these, what, like five or six straight lines that come out from her bottom lip all the way down across her chin to her neck. Um, and if you want to learn more about Olive Oatman, Stuff You Missed in History Class has an episode all about her. But she became a huge sensation in part because of, you know, the story of her kidnapping and ransom, but mostly due to that tattoo. And like you said, many Native American tattooing traditions were non-existent by the 20th centuries because while Olive Oatman was, <laughs> you know, super famous among white people, it was because they considered her kind of a freak for yeah. having this tattoo. And they certainly associated tattooing with savagery. Yes. And so tattooing became... Uh, a taboo, a tattoo taboo, for tattoo sure. Tattoo taboo. And so what I love seeing and reading about is this recent rise in indigenous women bringing back tattoo traditions in both the United States and Canada. Yeah, so there was an NPR story not long ago covering a small but growing group of Inuit women in Alaska who are getting uh, the traditional face tattoos um, so Inuit tattoo artist Maya Sealuk Jacobson is one of the few people who knows the traditional tattooing technique, um, one of which she learned as a kid, which is skin sewing. Um, I, I don't know that that's the technical term for it, um, but this was a, a tattoo method that I had never heard of before, where you essentially take um, a piece of dyed thread and stitch it into your skin. And they talked to one woman who was getting tattooed named Holly Minnick-Cook Nordlum, and she definitely felt this connection with her past. Her great-grandmother had a face tattoo similar to the one that she was receiving on her chin, right? Yeah. Um, And each line, again, represented a milestone in life, graduation, children, marriage, whatever. So these artists are working on bringing back that social, cultural, religious, and just really life significance to this body artwork. And even reviving the methods of tattooing has been a challenge because, um, as Jacobson told NPR, I mean, so many of these records have been lost. And she's had to piece together these techniques by um, relying on what she was taught by her, you know, Inuit family growing up. But then she was saying that, uh, I forget what year it was, but there were uh, this group of Inuit mummies, mummy, women who had been mummified <laughs> that were discovered. And she did all this research on the remains of their bodies to examine their tattoos and the ways that, and she kind of, you know, worked backward to figure out just how they had, you know, gotten that, that body modification done. And I'm not sure if these two groups of women know about each other, but uh, the CBC in Canada highlighted how there's a similar Inuit tattoo revival happening many, many miles away from Alaska um, in the Canadian territory, Nunavut. And it's also being led and started by women. Yeah. And so traditionally, women in this culture would have been selected to be tattooed at puberty. Um, I mean, but can you imagine today 
the judgment that so many strangers would have looking at children like, oh, what are you doing to your child? You're defiling their skin. But so many people are working to reclaim that because it doesn't mean what traditionally white missionary type folks have imbued it with. Yeah, I mean, getting tattooed at puberty was simply a way to mark their transition into womanhood. Um, And at this uh, traditional Inuit tattoo project that the CBC reported on, 20 local women showed up to not only learn the techniques, but also get tattooed themselves. Um, Some of them getting the traditional tattoos on parts of their bodies, like their hands and arms and fewer, um, but some still getting uh, the face tattoo. I mean, that's that's kind of the big news here that people are so surprised by that women especially would willfully elect to get their faces tattooed. Yeah. Well, I mean, faces aren't the only things that freak people out when it comes to women getting tattoos. It's really like, you know, historically, women getting tattoos at all. Well, and to me, it's pretty clear that since this is a form of body modification that was started by uh, people of color who are also indigenous um, is one of the reasons why it has taken so long for there to be this mainstreaming and an acceptance of, you know, anybody, but particularly a female body and especially a white female body um, to be considered, uh, you know, not deviant if it is tattooed because i mean if if we just look at the history of tattoos in the united states we see that they were there and happening before white folks even got there as soon as white folks got there and saw this body decoration it was considered a sign of how uh, you know native americans were heathenistic and savage and so of course it was something that should be outlawed and so it's driven underground And that connection is made all the more clear with Nora Hildebrand, who is the first circus sideshow tattoo lady who was essentially trying to ride Olive Oatman's coattails. Yeah. And she claimed that she was also tattooed by Native Americans. Was that a tall tale? Yeah, it was a tall tale. Her Uh, husband tattooed her. Okay, Yeah. Yeah. She that was in the late 1880s. And I love the idea of like. I'm going to ride a fellow circus freak's coattails by also tattooing my face. Got to make some money, honey. And something that I wasn't aware of was that also going on in the late 19th century was a trend among London and New York socialites to get very small, discreet, decorative tattoos. And that that was okay because it was hidden. It was small. And Um, you were rich. Right. So you were kind of above reproach. But women who had a whole lot of ink done were considered a violation of nature. So but do you know, did you read anything about what those tiny socialite tattoos were? No, I don't know too much about it. But listeners who want to learn more can consult Bodies of Subversion by Margot Mifflin, who was talking about that to The Atlantic magazine. I wonder if they got like little opera glasses or like a, a single white glove or something. I'm imagining them getting like a little tube of lipstick, <laughs> maybe a half-smoked cigarette. <laughs> so speaking of 
tattooed women and tattooed husbands and women getting into tattooing through their husband's interest in it. We've also got to talk about Maude Wagner. She was America's first known female tattooist. She was also, like these earlier women we mentioned, a circus attraction. But she met her beloved husband there and they had that tattoo connection. And I want to say that Gus Wagner, her future husband, like took a shine to her and he asked her out a few times and she finally relented when he was like, look, I will teach you how to give tattoos if you'll go on this date with me. Mm-hmm. And Maude was like, okay, Gus, let's do it. And then they fell in love and they had a baby and that baby grew up to be another tattooist. But she never got tattooed herself. Well, I never met Lavetta Wagner. Oh, Lavetta. <laughs> Lavetta. Yeah, which I, I, I believe that she was named Lavetta, um, to memorialize the love between Maude and Gus. Oh, can you feel the love tonight? I can. I, I definitely can. can. Well, um, and one of the reasons why Lavetta Wagner, who did grow up to become, you know, a well-known tattooist in her own right, one reason she never got a tattoo Maybe had a little bit to do with like, listen, mom's covered in tattoos. I'm not into that. But also I've read that after Gus died, um, since Maude had not allowed Gus to tattoo Lavetta for understandable reasons, Lavetta decided that if her dad had never been able to tattoo her, she wasn't going to let anyone else give her a tattoo. Oh, I know. Not even Maude? Not even Maude. Aww. Yeah. What a loving family. I know. I Lovetta. know. Although how cool it had been for Maude to have given Lavetta like one of those heart like mother tattoos. Yeah. But. From your ma. From your man. From your man. Um, so if we jump forward a little bit to 1943, we meet Mildred Hull. She's cited as the only female tattooist in New York at the time. And she taught herself. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the the thing that you read about Mildred Hull, also known as the Queen of the Bowery, every time is that she um, didn't learn from a boyfriend or husband. And it's notable, yeah, that she like struck out on her own um, and sought out tattooing without the inspiration of any dude. But there's like a certain tone to it sometimes in, in some of the sources we were reading that reminded me of like the fake geek girl thing mm. where it's like, yeah, she, you know, she's not like all those other girls who just, you know, did it because dudes were doing it. She wasn't like a fake tattoo girl. She was the real deal. I mean, uh. she was the real deal. I just think that it's, it, it says something that a lot of these women are defined by their relationship or lack of relationship to men. Yeah. I mean, I guess in our timeline, in the story we're telling, it's really not as important how they got into it as the fact that they did get into it and that they were successful. I mean, it is worth noting that some of them were introduced to tattooing by men, but the women we're talking about were all successful in their own right. Yeah. I mean, and of course, it's also a a very masculine subculture at this point. It's so far away from its original roots, a la surfing where it was far more of an egalitarian affair. Yeah, and something beautiful and sacred for women to have as well. Um, and I do love, though, side note, that Hull was a former chorus girl who tattooed uh, Debbie Johnson's socialite. I know, and I bet. I, I, I'd like to learn uh, more about this little side hustle that she had, uh, because I would suspect that those debutantes were maybe 
getting those those small discreet tattoos like we were thinking about with oh, the, the socialites before them. Because well, what are you going to do if it shows through your wedding dress? Oh, well, we, we got to get to that <laughs> in a little bit. Um, around the same time as Mildred Hull's career was peaking, um, we have circus sideshow act Betty Broadbent, who was one of the best known tattooed ladies of the day, like circus sideshow ladies of the day. But she also caused a stir when she entered a beauty contest, knowing that she wouldn't win. Spoiler alert. Um, but she basically did it just to highlight how tattoos are completely and totally at odds with conventional white beauty norms. So basically it sounds like Betty Broadbent is a badass. I mean, all these women are such bad. Well, yeah, no, without a doubt. But like, here's a woman who's like almost spitefully entering a contest to be like, what? I'm a woman. I'm tattooed. These things aren't mutually exclusive. I'm still amazing and beautiful. Oh, totally. Deal with it. Yeah. Society. I know. Betty Broadbent definitely sounds like a lady you would not want to mess with. And then as if uh, tattooing culture of that day wasn't masculine focused enough around World War II, it starts to be more associated with the rise of biker culture. So now it's not just like men versus women, masculine versus feminine. It's also got the subtext of like almost kind of a dangerous kind of scary masculinity that wasn't necessarily so friendly to women or people of color. Well, and also at this time, tattooing in a lot of places was downright illegal, a situation which was not helped in 1961 when a hepatitis C outbreak shut down all tattooing in New York. And by the way, tattooing was not officially legalized in New York until 1997. Oh, well, tattooing in South Carolina wasn't legalized until maybe not even 10 years ago when my friends, because I went to the University of South Carolina my freshman year of college, and all my friends who wanted tattoos had to drive across the border to Charlotte, North Carolina if they wanted to get tattoos. And they were inevitably always terrible. It was some, like, Chinese character that meant nothing to them. Uh, that's not the fault of the tattoo artists, however. That's just bad judgment from my drunk friends at college. Do you have any idea why South Carolina held out so long? Is it just sort of like Bible Belt politics? Uh, I think it has a lot to do. I don't know any like specifics, but I think it has a lot to do with the hyper both conservative and religious culture that is in South Carolina, because you have to keep in mind that when you and I were in college, Kristen, there was a movement among evangelical Christians in South Carolina to again secede from the union. Uh, and so I think not only was it uh, concerns over health and safety, nobody wanted a hep C outbreak, hepatitis outbreak. Nobody wanted to spread any other types of diseases, but I think that there was definitely a moralistic component as well. Well, and I remember very clearly growing up and going to church with my family and hearing, you know, the passage in Leviticus and the Old Testament, the Bible being cited as, you know, thou shalt not, um, you know, m- modify your body with tattoos is, is not a direct quote. 
Well, sure, exactly. Uh, I had a friend of mine, she and I went in like seventh, eighth grade to a big music festival here in Atlanta, and you could get henna tattoos. And I didn't think anything of it. I was really excited. She was really excited. We got, you know, stupid henna tattoos all over ourselves. And But she got hers where she could hide it. And it was because her mother, she was in a very religious family, and her mother, even if it was fake, did not want to see anything on her body, you know, especially not a real tattoo, a permanent tattoo, but even something like henna, even if you're like in a hurry and you write someone's phone number on the back of your hand, like none of that was acceptable. Well, and I have a feeling, too, that henna tattoos would also not be acceptable in an extremely conservative Christian home because they might in some way associate it with Hinduism. Mm, that's true. A lot of layers. So, we can we can get into into my Christian upbringing off off mic. <laughs> um, but if we get back, if we go back to hepatitis C <laughs> in the sixties, um, I mean, all of that really pushes this subculture even more underground. So that I mean, the likeliest people that you would see with tattoos would be inmates motorcyclists and gang members, whether they're in a motorcycle gang or not. And I guess also military members. Yeah. Sailors coming back with anchors on their big anchors on their forearm. <laughs> Tiny anchors on their wrists. Oh, like sorry. Me. I'm just thinking of Popeye. Never mind. But well, and and that is one big reason, you know, sailors um, and military men in the South Pacific because of World War II. I mean, that definitely um, is one of the reasons. That's definitely one of the ways that tattooing, you know, made its way back to the mainland. Yes. It was shipped here by sailors. Sailors shipped it here. And we do in the late 60s and 70s, we do see a tattoo renaissance that moves tattoos outside of, you know, those darker, more dangerous subcultures of illegal tattooing and bikers and circuses. And also apologies to bikers out there. I have nothing against you, really. I'm just reporting on attitudes. Uh, I'm sure you're all lovely. Um, but uh, we also get just like the subcultures of the 60s and 70s that are sort of taking over pop culture. Yeah, counterculture, baby. Um, so speaking to the New York Times in 2001, Lyle Tuttle, who is a legendary tattooist in San Francisco, uh, who's been credited with popularizing modern tattooing, <laughs> told the paper, and I have to direct quote this because it's uh, it just shouldn't be paraphrased. So Tuttle said, quote, I think the fuel that fired my rockets <laughs> was women's liberation. Nice. I think the popularity stems from the late 60s and early 70s when women's liberation kicked in because all of a sudden half the human race opened up. Yeah. So he's like, all these feminists suddenly came in wanting tattoos. Yeah. Just, Hopefully of the Venus symbol. I was just going to say, everybody's coming in and getting the Venus symbol with the fist in the middle. Um, and by the time we hit the 90s, tattoos are definitely becoming more mainstream, but they're still associated with more subversive attitudes. And Margot Mifflin, who wrote Bodies of, of Subversion, if I can say all of that correctly, uh, said that she saw that tattooing was an amazing barometer of women's dreams and fears and passions at that time. She said it was a period when body issues were at a peak of controversy at the end of the culture wars. I mean, and Mifflin was really, ta- I mean, she was absolutely correct. And she was tapping straight into what would become even more of a zeitgeist. Yeah, I mean, 
in the 90s, could you say that even though tattoos are becoming more mainstream, but they're still subversive, this was another way for another round of feminists to set themselves apart? Absolutely. I mean, it's still, you know, a conversation that comes up around um, agency and feminism and empowerment. Yeah, sure. Today. Um, and in fact, in 2012, a Harris poll found that for the very first time, there are more American women than men who have tattoos. So 23% of American women and 19% of American men who were polled um, have a tattoo. At the same time, research also finds that women are likely to seek tattoo removal and or experience tattoo regret. But I have a feeling that some of that might have to do with what we're going to talk about later in the episode, which is how women's bodies even still today are judged if they have visible tattoos. Yeah, and I think it's the lingering gender norms and implications that come along with tattoos that perhaps I'm not I'm this is just a theory that perhaps that maybe as women get older and their lives change, maybe they're having children, maybe they do face more body shaming from other people. Yeah, I mean, because there's uh, at every stage of um, what society expects to be a woman's life, Mm -hmm. having a tattoo is subversive. Think about a mother with a tattoo. What? I mean, I always remember, you know, um, when I was younger, anytime tattoos would come up, it would be the thing of like, well, you know, if you have kids, would you want your kids to see a tattoo? Or when you're a grandmother, would you want that wrinkly old tattoo on you? What will the kids think? Would you want that when <laughs> you're getting married? They'll probably just think it's normal since you're their mom, right? Yeah, is that the like, logical thing? They'll be like, "Cool, mom. Yeah, my mom's pretty cool." Or they'll they'll rebel and be like, "Oh, tattoos are subversive." I don't know what a kid says. Well, and it's just so. I mean, it's just considered so unfeminine, or at least was oh, yeah. like right up until. I mean, seriously, like I don't know, like ten years ago, maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, my friend Miranda has a giant piece on one of her arms that's a whole bunch of beautiful flowers. It's really colorful. It's gorgeous. And hearkening back to tattooing's roots in this country of signifying major life moments and relationships, each flower is the favorite flower of an important woman in her life. Her grandmothers, her mom, her best friends. Uh, and I love that, but... When she was getting this piece done, her mother did say, like, what are you going to do when you're old? And Miranda was like, well, I'm going to be an old lady with tattoos is what's going to happen, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Deal with it. Yeah. Well, I also have to shout out one of mine and, and the Internet's favorite tattoos of late, uh, which happened in 2015 when Rachel Fink got a notorious RBG Ruth Bader Ginsburg tattoo on her arm. And it went viral. I mean, CNN covered it. (laughs) so hilarious. And if CNN covers it, then you know it's news. That's right. This episode is brought to you by CNN. But if Rachel Fink had been getting a notorious RBG tattoo (laughs) leading up to the 1980s, although that wouldn't. When did RBG get on the Supreme Court? During the Clinton administration. Much later. Yeah. So that wouldn't have made any sense. But still, I mean, she was practicing law. I mean, she maybe was, she was an early fan. She was a badass. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
she didn't wait to be a badass until the 90s. So let's go back to, so Rachel Fink, who is, you know, probably not born yet at yeah. this time, she is getting a tattoo in utero of the law student Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Correct. Okay, cool. She, that fetus, yes. would have been advised by tattoo artists against getting such a large piece of work done because, genuinely or not, they were concerned about the stigma that women with a lot of art would face. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of in the same way of, you know, going in there drunk and being like, I want a dolphin on my, on my lower Frank. back. I want a Lisa Frank dolphin. Yes. And the tattoo artist would probably say, if he or she is responsible, would probably say, you are drunk. <laughs> I don't know that that's a great idea. Also, you're bleeding a lot because you've been drinking and your <laughs> blood is thinner. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of reasons, I'm not going to do that tattoo. Um, but uh, you, you might not like what people think about it. Um, and this is something that Beverly Yen Thompson explores in her book, Covered in Ink, Tattoos, Women and the Politics of the Body. And she interviews a lot of women who were part of the subculture when it was, you know, still very much underground. Um, but even today, heavily tattooed women or even just women with visible, like a visible tattoo mm-hmm. still catch all sorts of unwanted comments, questions, come ons and touching as a result of their ink. And this was something that I asked stuff mom never told you fans about on Facebook, whether this was something they ever experienced. And yes, was the overwhelming answer. Yeah. Because it's almost as if people think that the personal expression and art that a tattoo is, like as soon as that is on a woman's body and it's visible and she's in public, she is rendered just open and welcome to public for for public consumption. Like we somehow got it for for them in the same way that people will pet baby bumps. I was literally just going to say that it's like whenever something about your physical being is different than the quote unquote norm, go with me with the quote unquote part, uh, people feel like it's somehow not a part of you and they can just touch it. Yeah. And it really like my pulse is elevated now because I'm just picturing like if I had a visible tattoo and someone just came and touched it, how quickly I would throat punch them. Yeah. And and saying things like, why would you get those tattoos? You're such a pretty girl. I just like I can hear that in my mother's voice because she would absolutely say that in the same way that someone like a stranger Mm -hmm. um, will stop a pregnant woman at a sushi bar and be like, "Wait, wait, but 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 what about baby? Well, yeah, I mean, and and one thing that Thompson talks about is that despite how mainstream and very middle class tattoos have become, um, you know, it's like a hipster staple to have a tattoo, right? They are still associated with a degree of criminality, especially for men, but sexual deviance for women. And that's part of the whole like touching and you, you know, by virtue of having a tattoo, you're required to answer my questions about it, which is also very uh, violating. Well, and just this idea that women who have a lot of tattoos, similar to women who have a lot of visible piercings, that they're somehow kinkier, are more down for casual sex, um, are just going to be interested in any male who walks up to them. You know, it's just just waiting to go home with you. We don't even have to go home. We just do it right here. <laughs> who cares? I've got a tattoo. I'm crazy. Do it? You mean get ice cream? Yes. That's what some people call it. <laughs> 
And God help you, though, if you are not only a woman with a visible tattoo, but that it's something like skulls or zombies or blood or whatever, because that's like super outside the gender norm. What do you mean you don't have roses and Lisa Frank dolphins? Well, and this is something that Thompson writes about in Covered in Ink, the whole concept of, quote unquote, ugly tattoos and how, you know, especially tattoo collectors who have them, like if, if those tattoo collectors also happen to be women, just like minds are blown because it just it, it doesn't compute in the same way as uh, there's a stereotype that even female tattoo artists can't create those harsher, more grisly images because all we would want to do is something floral and soft. And well, the estrogen, feminine. it prevents your hand from forming those shapes. True. If if you weren't aware, uh, this pod- podcast is all about truthful education. Um, and, you know, we posted to our social media not too long ago. Well, I guess it was a while ago. It was 2015. But there was a social science journal study that found that the women participants who had four or more tattoos actually reported higher self-esteem. So everybody's like, yay, see, tattoos are great. And it's clearly correlated with a better sense of self. But they also found that women with tattoos in their study had a four times higher level of reported attempted suicide. So that like caused a lot of chit chatter on the Internet. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. The the virality of this study just made my eyes roll so far back <laughs> in my head because uh I mean, we're, we're confusing correlation and causation, which Correct. is something that the study authors emphasized that they don't know the exact relationship between the two. So you would see headlines, um, ranging from women with tattoos have higher self-esteem to women with tattoos want to kill themselves. And just like this mangling of information that all still seemed like just like salivating over this idea that there's just something wrong yeah. with women who have a lot of tattoos. Like, you've got to be broken yeah. in some See? way. See, women? You know, you are reclaiming your body because something happened to your body. And we don't really want to talk about it, but we're just going to assume a lot of things judging by all the tattoos. Because why else would you want to cover up your beautiful feminine form, mm, you know? That God gave you. Thanks, missionaries. <laughs> well, and I wish that we could uh, just magically talk to Margaret Cho about this, have her pop into the studio because she so famously has tons and tons and tons of tattoos all over her body done by all sorts of famous tattoo artists. She is definitely a collector and she has talked about how tattoos have been a form of body reclamation for her. And it's something that I've, you know, heard of from other women. There is a sense of agency that you get when you are willfully like paying someone money to uh, poke you real hard on your rib cage for Ooh. two hours. But I, I, but I, you know, I, I love, I just flipped that to myself. Um, uh, but there is for some people, I've experienced this, a very real sense of agency in getting a tattoo, a meaningful tattoo. Um, yeah, and that's something that we talked a lot about in our episode on mastectomy tattoos. Right. Women who have been through such physical trauma and emotional trauma um, 
covering scars or just in some way reclaiming their bodies through tattoos instead of getting reconstructive surgery. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the thing is, I just um, I get so tired of this misperception that you know, things in our past that happened to us, whether it's just general hard times or outright like abuse or assault, that that renders you just damaged goods. Yeah. And that, you know, tattoos must be must be evidence of something wrong, unless it is like a pleasant bouquet of flowers or a Chinese symbol that you got on spring break. And you don't know what it means. No. So, Caroline, now is it time for us to hear from listeners? Yes, I'm sure y'all have some great slash tragic and upsetting stories. Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious to hear what the what the state of women and tattoos is in terms of how people react to your tattoos, what your tattoos mean to you. Um, how you react to people reacting. Yeah, and I'm interested, too, in hearing from tattoo artists out there as well about trends in tattoos, for instance, because literally there are entire Pinterest boards and accounts dedicated to what I'm going to call trendy tattoos, like those thinner lines, like maybe they're, they more, they actually harken back to a lot of the indigenous designs that we were seeing in a lot of our research and that they're thinner, maybe they're arrows or mountains or triangles or, or something decorative like that versus, you know, the, the pinup girl tattoo, the mom tattoo. I am super interested to hear about trends and what people are drawn to. And final call for any rad bird <laughs> suggestions. <laughs> for me, and because I, I want to get this tattoo, and of course I will share it with the stuff I've never told you audience. Let's just crowdsource this thing. Also, if there are any rad lady tattooists listening to this in Atlanta right now, please email me. Because <laughs> I, I, a la- lady did my battleship, and I'd like a lady to do my rad bird. So, with that, listeners, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us Photos of your tattoos at Mom Stuff Podcast. And you can also post photos of your rad tattoos on our Facebook page. And be sure to tune in to our next episode where we're going to talk about women tattoo artists. So be sure to tune in. And with that, let's read some messages when we come right back from a quick break. Letter here from Amy, in which she references our our slightly long ago episode on the White Marmorian flock, uh, which we referenced in our episode on Boston marriages. Amy says, "I'm writing to say that I share a number of striking connections with this group of fabulous women." I'm a sculpture student at the Rhode Island School of Design. I've always been drawn to classical sculpture and had a desire to learn stone carving. This past semester, I decided to study abroad in Rome, and because I couldn't get enough of Italian culture and life, I decided to stay for the summer. I spent this semester learning how to carve marble with a funerary monument carver in Guidonia, Italy, and currently I have an internship in Assisi, Italy, at a marble carving studio to further my education. I'm learning traditional techniques of copying plaster models in marble using a pantograph. I say pantograph like I know what that is. Amy goes on to say, additionally, 
While listening to the podcast, I did a brief Google search on some of the artists in the group. I typed Harriet Hosmer's name into Google Images, and the first sculpture to come up was her sculpture of Beatrice Sensi. Coincidentally, I lived and studied in the Palazzo Sensi in Rome during my semester abroad. It is the original home that Beatrice lived in until she killed her father. Uh, there are even some original frescoes still surviving in the Palazzo. I was very excited by all of these connections and would love to do more research on these women. Amy, I hope you do. They are fascinating. I love the White Marmorian flock. They are badass artist ladies. And so thank you for your letter. Well, I've got a letter here from Megan in response to our episode, part one, on librarians. And Megan is writing us from the American Library Association. So that makes me really happy. Um, so... Megan writes, when I'm not listening to podcasts, and sometimes when I am, I actually work promoting libraries and librarians at the American Library Association on our public awareness and advocacy campaign, Libraries Transform. I'm also a librarian, and I hope to get a job out in library land working in youth services, which is something ALA totally knows and encourages. And yes, I rock a mod cloth wardrobe and have vintage home decor. One of the very first classes I took in library school was a class on the history of libraries and librarianship, hence Melville Dewey certainly made an appearance. The good news is that my textbook did point out that he was a womanizing creep, so while he did do a lot for our profession and started the association I work for, I've never harbored any illusions about him. On a side note, I like that you noted how he wanted to shorten words and use shorthand, one great example of which is his name, which he changed from Melville, spelled V-I-L-L-E, to Melville, V-I-L. Also, if you want to use a cataloging system for your podcast but want to avoid Dewey, you can go with a Library of Congress classification instead. Well, thank you so much, Megan, and I hope you enjoyed part two. And also, speaking of libraries, we had a couple of librarians on Facebook uh, mention a very important thing that we really did not cover at all in our two-parter history, that librarians are certainly not just book slingers. There are librarians that don't even deal with books at all. So now I feel like we've got a part three yeah. that we need to do. Three, four, seven, ten. I mean, I'll do them. I'm, yeah. I'm happy to do them. Um, so with that, listeners, send us your letters. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about women and tattoos, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.